Before the show starts, I want to make an appeal to all you listeners that if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon. Not only will you help this podcast continue to move forward, you will now get a little something in return. You will join the table of ranks of the SRB empire. For a monthly contribution of $1 to $4, you'll be given the rank of Collegiate Registrar and receive an SRB podcast refrigerator magnet. For $5 to $9, you'll be named Collegiate Secretary and get an SRB podcast shot glass and all the privileges of lower ranks. For $10 to $24, you'll become a Collegiate Counselor and will receive a promo code for 30% off of books from the University of Pittsburgh Press and all the privileges of lower ranks. And for $25 or more, you'll be anointed a Chancellor and will be sent a set of four SRB podcast shot glasses and all the privileges of lower ranks. Join the table of ranks and help me give you in-depth discussions about Russia and the wider region that you won't find anywhere else by clicking on the Patreon button on seansrussiablog.org. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The Spanish Civil War is remembered as a time of left international solidarity, sacrifice, and idealism. For many communists, it didn't just represent the good fight against fascism. The war was also the place where one lived communism, to realize one's communist beliefs, practices, and culture. So what did it mean to be a communist in the Spanish Civil War, and how did it shape international communism in the late 1930s? I turned to Lisa Kirschenbaum for some insights. Lisa Kirschenbaum is a professor of history at Westchester University, her research explores how people come to represent and understand their life stories as part of history, focusing on the linkages between individual, private lives, and the momentous and often traumatic events of Russia's 20th century. She's the author of three books, Small Comrades, Revolutionizing Childhood in Soviet Russia, 1917 to 1932, published by Rutledge, the Legacy of the Siege of Leningrad, 1941 to 1995, Myth, Memories, and Monuments, published by Cambridge University Press, and her most recent book, International Communism and the Spanish Civil War, Solidarity and Suspicion, also published by Cambridge University Press. Here's Lisa Kirschenbaum. So your book, International Communism and the Spanish Civil War, examines the relationship between international communism and the Civil War. And I thought we'd start by having you give a brief overview of the war. What was at stake and what is its relationship to international communism? Okay, that is actually a, a complicated and contested question, of course. I, um, I quickly learned that even though as a Soviet historian, I thought I understood contentious historiography. I did not really understand contested historiography until I started looking at the Spanish Civil War. But the, the kind of causes of the war really are rooted in Spanish history and the kinds of social, political, economic changes that led to the foundation of the Spanish Republic in 1931. 
1936, what became the Civil War started as a military coup against the Popular Front government that had been elected in February of 1936. Um, and that coup initially actually went pretty well for the Republic. Um, the started with the Army of Africa. It the the coup did well in North Africa, but on the peninsula the not always well-coordinated Republican resistance actually pretty effectively resisted uh, the coup. What turned it into a kind of international cause and a civil war was that relatively quickly, both Nazi Germany and fascist Italy offered real material aid to the rebels. Um, and roughly at the same time, France, eager to try and contain the war, uh, got everybody to agree to a non-intervention uh, agreement with the which the Germans and the Italians went along with at the same time that they were happily supplying the rebels. So that then turns it into an international cause and becomes it becomes from that point a kind of emblem of fascist aggression and the place where it seems necessary to stop that fascist aggression. So it becomes internationalized because of Italian and German intervention. And then the Soviets try and are try to work a kind of delicate position, not wanting to alienate the British and the French, so they don't want to offer obvious military aid to the Republic on the one hand, but on the other hand, recognizing that non-intervention is really just upon the Republic, and so eventually begin a very public humanitarian aid campaign to Spain and a much more uh, sort of low-profile military assistance. Mm -hmm. and, and so why is this historiography so contentious? Because uh, the idea that the, I've sort of told it as if the, the Soviets want to uh, prevent German aggression, but that's, of course, uh, pretty contested with some uh, historians arguing that what the Soviets are really wanting is to kind of turn Spain into a kind of people's republic, uh, that they're less interested in preventing uh, the spread of fascism or winning the war in Spain uh, than they are with asserting control over the republic. So there's a lot of questions about the kind of purity or sincerity of Soviet anti-fascism uh, and the degree to which, even stepping a, a sort of step earlier, the degree to which communist and the, and the republic's own behavior kind of made uh, the rebellion necessary, right? So, so sort of who's to blame is is a huge kind of contentious issue, and how sincere the Soviets are about their their anti-fascism uh, is a big issue. I though have tried to sidestep both of those things um, and focus more on the ways in which the Spanish Civil War became this really emblematic and. Uh, intensive cause for international communists, that it really became a kind of defining cause politically and also personally for international communists who participated in Spain. But also uh, there's some evidence that even people in the Soviet Union who just learned about the war through the Soviet media saw it as this kind of idealistic, noble cause. Whether or not it really was noble is is the kind of nub of the controversy. And, and so why did it... it you know, because there is a is even in my cursory under knowledge of the Spanish Civil War, there is a lot of romanticism, a lot of mythology around it. So why did it become so attractive for communists to see it as this and remember it as this 
pivotal point in their political life, their, the shaping their identity, the emotional attractiveness and, and um, emotional um, connection to participation and interest in the Civil War? I, I think that there, on some level, it really did look like a very clear-cut cause for communists, that this was uh, Nazi and Italian fascist intervention against a democratically elected popular front government. It was not a communist government in Spain. Um, and that this really was the kind of place where uh, people could make a stand against fascism and against Nazism. Remember, a lot of the people who eventually join the international brigades and fight in Spain are already exiles. A lot of Italians fight, a lot of Germans fight um, on the side of the Republic. Um, it also, I think, is, is benefits, in a sense, from happening at the same time as the Stalinist terror, which obviously is, is the exact opposite of kind of a communist noble cause. And so there, I think, is some effort um, on people who want to believe in the Soviet project, in the communist cause, to see it as being kind of reinvigorated in Spain, that that becomes the kind of front line of the struggle and what's going on in the Soviet Union, we can maybe pay less attention. To. Um, so so in, in a sense, it's, it's a way of seeing something good about the communist project at a time when what's going on in the Soviet Union is hard to spin as positive. I was also thinking about it too, um, in terms of uh, not just, I mean, it's interesting saying it's a try to reclaim the Soviet project in light of the terror, but also I was thinking in terms of reclaiming the revolution, the international revolutionary project after years of the inter, the, the cause of international communism f fading after, you know, 1921. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that too. It's certainly the biggest operation that international ever put together. Um, but it's not, in a sense, a really revolutionary proposition, which I think is what's interesting about it, is that the, the communist position in Spain is really focused more on winning the war uh, and defeating fascism. It's almost a defensive revolution more than a, than a spreading of it. But the enemies seem so clear there that that it's a very kind of attractive and and there's a certain kind of romance about Spain even in the early 30s when when Ilya Ehrenberg is writing about the uh, uprising in Asturias in 1934 he talks about Spain in the most stereotypical ways as the land of toreadors and castanets um, so there is a certain kind of you know romance of Spain I think that's a part of it too no I find I find the fact that you're um trying to sidestep these kind of standard historiographical questions and, and look at where it played in the in the idea of being a Bolshevik um, is is really interesting because you know this is a topic as you well know in the in the Soviet Union throughout since 1917 this is a repeated question that comes up over and over and over and even as you say in the Spanish context and it's similar in the Soviet context while there was a lot of struggle over what it meant to be a Bolshevik, there was never any set rules. Or, the, or they're always contested. I they're think. always contested, is, I should say. Yeah, yes, yeah. right. No, I think that's exactly right. And looking at the international communists is interesting because uh, we think a lot about um, 
how it is that people can maintain the sort of Bolshevik identity and look around and see that reality doesn't match what it's supposed to be. Uh, and in the Soviet case, there have been a lot of efforts to do that, usually um, sort of with this notion of sort of suspending disbelief, but also emphasizing that it's a closed ecosystem, right? People didn't have anything else to go by. The international communists are um, in a way, a much more complicated and interesting case because this is a freely chosen identity for them. They know full well uh, about options in other places, and yet they align themselves with Bolshevism, want to become Bolsheviks uh, on the one hand, but then on the other hand, there's also in some of these places where communists from different places come together, like in Spain, a, a certain kind of pushback against uh, Soviet notions of how things have to be. So it, it's this very complicated way in which the Soviet ideas are very attractive, but also don't always play out exactly the same way everywhere. Well, let's talk about one of those points uh, before the Civil War, and, and that is the fact that the Soviet Union did establish a few schools for training uh, international communists in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, there was the Communist University of Toilers of the East. There was the Communist University of National Minorities of the West, um, which I'm surprised hasn't gotten more attention in, in history. Um, there's been very little work, to my knowledge, on them. And then finally, the one that you focus on, and that is the International Lenin School. Which so, I think has gotten the most attention. Yeah, yeah, right. And so what what were these schools in general, and what was the Lenin School in particular? So the, the first two were actually founded much earlier, I think in 21. And the Lenin School is founded in 1926. Um, and its idea was of a place to train international communists to become sort of Bolsheviks. Uh, and it's, it's part of the Comintern's policy in the 20s of sort of Bolshevizing uh, member parties. And it lasts through 1938, eventually falling victim to the terror. And it obviously changes its curriculum as the common term line changes, but its basic premise of creating, uh, as one guy says, sort of laboratory conditions where we can turn uh, Western communists into uh, good Bolsheviks remains uh, the kind of basic premise of the school. A lot of the ways in which it's been looked at is in terms of how effective that is, right? How indoctrinated are these folks? How much effect do they have on the parties when they go home? I'm trying to look at it instead as a kind of node in these common turn networks where rather than thinking about how much control does Moscow really have over those parties, how much independence do those parties have, look at a place where they come together and have to interact every day. How does that happen? And so I, I focus mostly on the Spaniards, on the Americans at the school, neither uh, of which have been studied much before. There's a lot more, say, on the British contingent of, and really thinking about how they kind of make sense of and interact with the kinds of expectations that are put on them. One of those really uh, places where, where I think the system becomes very uh, sort of a lot of friction is that the school has this commitment to conspiracy. It's a clandestine school. They're training people to, uh, you know, sort of be secret agents in kind of the mold of pre-revolutionary Bolsheviks in a way. But a lot of the students who come from legal parties in the West do not do a very good job on maintaining conspiracy the way the, the, way the Soviets want them to. 
but it's also interesting you point out that they're they're not actually these these national parties say from the United States and from Spain uh, at one point I think you 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 refer to some some of these national parties refer to the Lenin school as a kind of dumping ground <laughs> well, <laughs> of of the of the people they kind of want to you know get rid of <laughs> right right i think i think that that expression is really um for for the british but you can you can imagine especially a party like the american party which isn't very big they don't they don't want to send their best organizers to the soviet union and sometimes people were gone for years and then they would enlist them to do uh, sort of secret courier missions for the Comintern, so they might not get them back for, for two years or more. So you're not eager, if you're running the party in the U.S., to send your best folks uh, out of the country, and then there's some sense that they come back sort of spouting Bolshevik in ways that are not very helpful uh, back in the coal fields of Pennsylvania. So, so there's some resistance to sending people. Um, and in the American case, the school wants the U.S. party to send African-Americans. It's very small numbers of Africans in the party. They don't necessarily want to bundle them all off to Moscow. They, they want them in the States. The U.S. party, which is also obviously a very immigrant-based party, also has the problem of a lot of Russian-born people in the party who you know, emigrated before the revolution often want to go back to the Soviet Union and overstay their leaves there. So the, the U.S. party has this kind of, uh, is bleeding people into the Soviet Union. And they, they, they want to keep them at home. They need them at home, right? They're being held to certain standards uh, by, by the Soviet Comintern um, at the same time that they're asking people to come. So a lot of the students that go don't meet the school's requirements. And and about how many how many people are they sending and like how many you know American and Spanish communists are going to study in the Lenin School and 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 coming from say you know the United States and Spain I mean even in the nineteen late twenties and thirties what were their experience and their impressions of the Soviet Union? Well, the numbers really vary over time. Basically, before nineteen thirty one and the founding of the Republic, there are essentially no Spaniards there, just a handful. Um, the U.S. party is always one of the ones that sends more. I don't have the exact figures, but in the early years, they send probably over 50 people, which is maybe about half or a little less than half of what a closer, bigger party like the Czechoslovak parties. Uh, but the U.S. is always sending people. And the Soviets are interested in the U.S. party because it's so multilingual and multi-ethnic. So they imagine that they can use African-Americans to work with Africans. There are Asian-Americans who go to the school who they imagine can uh, in Asia. So the U.S. party is kind of attractive um, from that point. So the numbers uh, vary over time. Neither the U.S. nor Spain send the largest numbers. But Spain sends more and more after 1931, and especially after 1934. Some come as... as uh, basically refugees from, from us or after the operative war. I'm sorry. And, and what was the second part of what you're asking? So what did they, what did they experience? Like what, because you, you talk about it, for example, just the, in term, since you mentioned the issue of languages, that it really is a kind of tower of Babel <laughs> uh, um, I'm in the school and, and just, you know, coming from the United States or coming from, from Spain, you know, what did they, what did they experience and what did, were their impressions of, you know, being in Soviet Russia? Yeah, it's, it's, um, 
it's interesting to try and get at that because they all took vows of secrecy uh, from the school. And a lot of them really maintain that even in their memoirs. They don't they don't say much about it. Um, so you can kind of get a sense from the school records that they were often misbehaving, right? They have a lot of problem people staying out after curfew, drinking, having uh, Russian girlfriends that they're not supposed to have. It's a predominantly male student body. Um, so on the one hand, there's this constant uh, sort of sense from the school records that that maintaining this discipline that they're supposed to all be learning uh, is, is challenging. Um, there's also uh, ways in which the the people at the school kind of learn about the Soviet Union often through these sort of summer practical courses that they give them. They visit factories, they visit collective farms, uh, and some of what they see is pretty shocking, doesn't really line up with their expectations of what the Soviet Union is supposed to be like. And so trying to manage that is, is part of what the school in a way is trying to teach them to look at the Soviet Union, not as a, as they say, a bourgeois statistician would look at it, um, but look at it the way a proletarian revolutionary would look at it. So they have to learn how to kind of see past some of the current problem to see the future of what the Soviet needs to be offering. And then there are ways in which the, the Soviet teachers, in a way, have to learn from or at least work with the students that they get in ways that they don't expect. So uh, in the early 1930s, there's a, a huge kind of crisis in the American contingent um, along a, a problem of what was known in communist circles as white chauvinism, what we might call racism. And the Soviets really don't understand what that means for African-American students at the school. And, and so there's a kind of there's, there's actually a huge open meeting about it, and the Soviets kind of equate charges of racism uh, with sort of factionalism, sort of their model, that, that, that that's a kind of cover for a factional difference, a sort of nationalist deviation or something like that. And so the Americans try to explain that there's sort of you know, what racism means in, a, in an American context. I'm not sure that the Soviets ever get it, but the final sort of official solution to the problem actually rejects the some of the teachers, the Soviet teachers' understandings of this as rooted in kind of factionalism. This is all happening around the same time that this sort of hunt for Trotskyites and Trotskyist deviations is, is kind of ginning up in, in the Soviet Union. And one of the instructors in the American section uh, is part of that. So the Americans are trying to say, no, no, this is different than that. This is, you know, that's not how this is working here. Um, and, and so there's some sense in which they all agree that white chauvinism is a bad thing, but how it manifests itself and how you uh, try and prevent it, there's, there's, some disagreements and difficulties about. You know, I have to say, I find that really surprising considering that in the early 30s, there was such a campaign around American racism and the Scottsboro case and, you know, all the things that Meredith Roman talked about in her book that they would just see it as some sort of strange deviation of, you know, 
nationalism in the Russian or Soviet ethnic context? Well, you know, part of it is because some of the African-American students uh, accuse the Soviet Union of being racist, right? <laughs> so, so, uh, so it's not so... So that, of course, is that not true, right? <laughs> that couldn't happen. So, so if you're accusing people of, of being racist, uh, and part of those accusations are against the Soviet system, then we, we're not understanding what racist is, right? So, um, so there's this, and, and there's some understanding, uh, among, among the Soviets that this is a kind of problem within the American uh, sort of contingent at the school, but when the African American students criticize not just their American peers, but the overall institution and the Soviet Union, that's where you get a kind of sense that what you're talking about isn't white chauvinism. You're just using that as cover for some kind of factional. Ah, uh, I see. So yeah. the people who are charging the racism are the ones who are being pinned as the factionalists. Yeah, in some cases, which is, and, um, and so it, it, it results in this, but there really is a, a kind of problem and it seems to go back to the instructions that the Americans got when they're coming over supposedly secretly. This is before the U.S. recognizes the Soviet Union in the early 1930s. And so they're coming across by ship and, um, the instructions from the National Party are that the, African-Americans who are all men shouldn't socialize with the white women on the ship over, right? So as not to cause a problem. That's they're obviously a very problematic instruction under any circumstances, even more so when one of the, you know, that there's an interracial couple among, <laughs> among the people on the ship. So, so there's really a kind of lack of understanding on the American party side of sort of how best to implement again this call for conspiracy we can't we have to be low profile if we've got black men and white women socializing uh, on this ocean liner we're just going to call attention once some of these people and and also communists from you know straight from the united states or from europe or other parts of europe are going to spain so what was their what was the experience of international communists once they they got themselves to spain well, I think, you know, of course, it depends on uh, the lot of differences, but, but I think one of the sort of most vivid uh, sort of initial descriptions is from one of the Americans who's there, a Finnish American who says, this thing sure is international. Um, and that seems like one of the first and, and really kind of exciting uh, experiences that people have is that they're really part of, there are people there from more than 50 countries. So there's this strong sense of being really living international solidarity. And I think some people felt that at places like the Lenin School, but I think in Spain, where they're literally fighting together, it's even a stronger uh, kind of sense of that, um, that they're all there for the same cause and that there's a certain kind of um, romanticization, you know, all these people coming together, um, working together effectively from all over, speaking all different languages. So that's, I think, one kind of initial experience that was very common, was the sort of excitement of really living um, this idea of international solidarity. Now, in, in one of the things about this question of being a communist, and as you said, it's always contested, 
And a lot of that, that formation of living a communist, being a communist is, of course, wrapped up in enemies and friends, right? Enemies and comrades. So first, let's talk about the role of enemies. Um, and that, of course, leads to one of the big things that most people talk about or a lot of people address in terms of the Spanish Civil War, and that is its relationship to the Great Terror. So how did how did the terror – I mean, on the one hand, you said earlier that the, the war acted as a way to deflect away from what was going on in Soviet Russia. But nonetheless, the atmosphere of the terror um, and the search for enemies uh, arrives in the Spanish context. So, so what is the relationship between these two events and how people experience them? Yeah, it's definitely a, it's it's a, a kind of paradoxical. On the one hand, I think the war is a kind of escape from the purges, literal in some cases, right? With Austrian, uh, you know, political exiles in the Soviet Union reading the writing on the wall and saying, "I'd rather be in Spain." Um, and so, some people who are literally escape the purges uh, by going going to Spain. But on the other hand, of course, the experience in Spain is completely uh, connected to this sort of Stalinist atmosphere of terror. Um, and there are some clear instances where NKVD practices are implemented in Spain against political enemies. Um, but there's, uh, there's nothing on the scale of, of the Stalinist terror in the Soviet Union. And of course, what's dangerous for the Soviets who serve in Spain is going back home. Uh, that's, that's where they often get into some trouble. But the larger kind of sense of sort of Trotskyist vipers everywhere is just pervasive in Spain and becomes a kind of critical way for a lot of people who don't really understand the complicated political situation in Spain of making sense of it, right? So the the famously, right, the, the non-Stalinist militia that George Orwell served in, the poem, right, the communists say is essentially... Uh, working for the fascists because it's opposing uh, the communists. Obviously, that's uh, a kind of nutty proposition. And yet this idea that they're Trotskyites and therefore essentially part of the fascist problem is one that's very pervasive, like in Letters Home, right, that these, these Trotskyite bastards are trying to end the war. So that kind of explanation of things not going the right way because of these massive conspiracies of the Gestapo and Japanese intelligence and Trotskyites permeates the way in which things are understood in Spain, although it doesn't work in the same way to drive mass terror. And then developments in Spain, on the other hand, can help justify what's going on in the Soviet Union. Because how does the Spanish Civil War start? Well, a coup led by army officers. So maybe uh, purging the Red Army is not really so illogical from that perspective, right? It's the same enemies uh, everywhere. But it was interesting because I think at one point you um, you cite, I think it was an NKVD report going back to, sent back to Moscow about how in Spain, they were, some of the, the communists there were even more enthusiastic to apply all of these categories to of enemies um then you would find ironically in the soviet union <laughs> so is it is that that 
in, in the Soviet parlance, excess, <laughs> is, is that a result of just the, the conditions of the war in the, in the sense that, you know, it is a really, you know, a life or death struggle with uh, all of the things of paranoia and conspiracy and turncoats and all of this? Is, is that, would you attribute that to the atmosphere or is there something, or maybe these aren't, these are connected, that there's something particular about the communist culture that um, develops in, in this milieu? I, I think part of it is is the atmosphere and in an interesting way, right? These these guys, the the Soviets coming into Spain are are kind of applying labels that make sense in the Soviet Union, and I think they become sort of excessive in the context of a multi party, still democratic state. So that what the, the communist culture that kind of works in the Soviet Union imported into Spain becomes kind of counterproductive. You can't keep labeling people fascists and it's just not going to play here. Um, I, I think is, is sort of the complaint that they're, that they're taking this sort of Stalinist culture and putting it in a place where the situation is obviously very different. And so it, it doesn't work as effectively. Now, now on the flip side of the enemies is of course, there's also friends. And and as you hinted earlier, the war is a you know a bonding experience. Um, there's lots of feelings of comradeship. There's lots of feelings of love. There's sociability uh, amongst international communists in Spain. So uh, talk about that uh, culture and and its place in in being a communist in in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, well, I think I think that's exactly why the Spanish Civil War becomes and remains for so many the kind of defining uh, of being a that there's this sense of international solidarity, right? Everybody uh, singing the international in all different languages, right? But something that we can all kind of join in uh, and do together the sense of coming and sacrificing uh, for the just cause. And some of those connections uh, are maintained afterward among the people from the same place, right? Like the American volunteers maintain an organization still around. Uh, they correspond with each other. They get together with each other. They work together. But they also maintain uh, correspondence with people who aren't Americans who also fought in the war. So it becomes this kind of living this hope of, of an international solidarity or an international, you know, friendship. Um, and so I think that's, that's a piece of it. I talk a little bit about how uh, sometimes it's, it's complicated, right, because there's also a lot of national frictions, right? There's this kind of romanticized version of it. But if you look at the reports from the commissars, there's also a tremendous amount of friction uh, between different groups so that the Americans always talk about how we're so exemplary in the way in which we interact with the Spanish villagers who are hosting us, um, but we're struggling against the, fa the fact that the French who were here before, you know, were harassing the women and drinking too much and we had to overcome their bad reputation. Um, the French, on the other hand, are always uh, annoyed by how arrogant the Germans are, right? Everybody's sort of got, got their own thing. And, and then the Americans who uh, get the most cigarettes from home are the least generous in sharing them out, although the Americans think that they're incredibly generous, right? So, so there's all of this kind of uh, uh, friction that's, that's also uh, going on around this that um, 
that's not part of obviously the mythologized story, but it's very much part of the reality of this sort of internationalized uh, contingent, right? And um, one interesting conflict is is the Canadians uh, and the Americans, who you would think would get along, right? Uh, but the Canadians tend to be very, very working class, uh, a lot of lumberjacks and that sort of stuff. And they see the Americans, uh, especially uh, the New Yorkers and the New York Jews, uh, as as they call them, the New York ice cream boys. So they see them as as not uh, kind of the same real manly that they are, but um, more respectable. Right, right. Talk, talk about this about this a bit more, this issue of masculinity, because, of course, you know, um, Hemingway is kind of the archetype of this kind of, you know, Spanish Civil War masculinity. But, you know, you you also point out that, you know, the, the image of the tough guy is is also plays a role here in terms of the 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 culture amongst communists. So talk a bit about because that's an interesting thing that the way these different you know communists and then those are from the working class and from different geographical areas even within countries uh, how masculinity uh, played a role. It's it's really interesting. I mean, it, I I think that we often pay a lot of attention to how kind of complicated and shifting and contradictory communist ideas about women women are, right? There's there's the sort of, you know, female aviators and then, you know, the motherland mother kind of thing. But what becomes clear in the war is that communist ideas about masculinity are just as fraught and complicated. And because on the one hand, there's obviously this call to discipline and submitting yourself to party discipline, um, being respectable, right? That uh, communists don't overindulge, they don't, uh, you know, harass the women, uh, that they're, you know, sort of good, politically conscious, uh, respectable uh, men, but there's also a real strong strain of uh, sort of working class, rougher masculinity, right? That if you don't drink, you know, real men drink, right? What does that say about you? Um, and so there's this trying to balance the sort of ostentatious virility, which is also part of communist ideas, right? You think about any communist image of the male worker as this, you know, rippling muscles and a big hammer. Um, so there's this sort of ostentatious virility on the one hand, and on the other hand, this need to be disciplined and respectable. Um, and in a war situation, you have the additional uh, kind of situation of this often extremely emotional and, and very moving uh, kind of discussion in some of the letters of uh, homosocial bonding that goes on at the front, this kind of closeness to comrades, um, which is not really very, very tough guy, right? But is, is kind of a essential piece of what happens uh, among men in wartime. So how they work out the limits of all of this becomes uh, a very complicated. The, the one thing that they can kind of all agree on is that uh, male homosexuality is kind of beyond the pale for a con. Um, so I have, you know, in one memoir, what I'm going to emphasize in an unsubstantiated story, I can't find any confirmation of anywhere else uh, that two uh, young volunteers who were found in a compromising position with one another, two men, were executed. I don't know that that's happened, but but it certainly indicates this kind of uh, real kind of violent rejection 
of, of homosexuality as something that that at least we know is completely incompatible with common. The Spanish Civil War, of course, is quickly followed by World War II and, and as an event overshadowed by it. So how do, did international communists relate to each of these, these major, these conflicts that they, you know, both lived through if they lived? Well, you know, the, the World War II is, of course, in two pieces, um, especially, I think, for people who fought in Spain. One is the period of the Nazi-Soviet pact, which really undermines everything that they fought for. Um, and some of them leave the party at that time uh, over, over the Nazi-Soviet pact. But lots of people try to kind of rationalize it as sort of, you know, Stalin's tactical brilliance in terms of the Nazis at this moment. And there's certainly a lot of pent-up anger against the British and the French who could have intervened on the side of the Republic uh, and chose not to. So in a sense, there's a little bit of, you know, they're getting theirs idea. Um, but that moment, I think, is very difficult for people who fought in Spain. Um, there's a wonderful story that Dolores Ibarri tells in her memoir um, she goes into exile in the Soviet Union after the fall of the Republic, and she's trying to Russian, uh, and she realizes that political words are pretty much all the same in all languages, so she can kind of make sense of Pravda, and then she says, but sometimes uh, the newspaper was actually saying the opposite of what I thought it was saying, right? <laughs> Which she doesn't go into any detail here, but one can imagine that the kind of emblem of the anti-fascist struggle in Spain is having a little difficulty understanding this alliance or this non-intervention. Uh, a non-aggression pact with, with the Nazis. So that moment, I think, is very difficult uh, for the veterans of, of, of the war. And then the, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union is in some sense a relief, right? Because we're all back uh, on the same anti-fascist page. But the Spaniards in the Soviet Union are still viewed with suspicion. They're not necessarily given the combat positions that they want in the Red Army, whether that's because they're somehow uh, suspicious as foreigners or they just don't have the Russian that they need. Um, and Americans who fought in Spain are also eager uh, to enlist, and they often also don't get the combat assignments that they want, the promotions that they think that they're due. So a lot of the American veterans correspondence during the war is complaining about, we have this great experience fighting fascists, why won't, why won't they uh, take advantage of it? So, so that is seen as a kind of continuation and a vindication, I think, of what they did in Spain, although not always appreciated uh, by the governments involved. And what happens in the Cold War to a lot of these people? The Cold War is not kind to veterans of the Spanish Civil War on either side, um, actually. And, and in a certain sense, it's maybe not a surprise because the Cold War is about iron curtains, right? It's about uh, clear divides between uh, systems. And the Spanish War veterans are really about, to use a favorite Stalinist phrase, rootless cosmopolitanism, right? These are people who cross borders, who exist um, in multilingual, multi-ethnic situations, so they're they're not really wanted on either side. Uh, in the East Bloc, uh, very famously, right, a lot of the uh, show trials in the East Bloc put on trial and execute a lot of these so-called Spaniards, the veterans of the Spanish Civil War, 
and that in the U.S., where obviously there's nothing that's quite as deadly as the purges in the East Bloc, but they're often targeted in uh, Smith Act uh, charges, you know, which basically criminalized communists in the U.S. Um, and so the, the communists retain uh, their identity as having fought in Spain as kind of showing communist idealism, right? But for both the Soviets and the U.S., they look a lot like potential spies. And there's certainly a kind of spy mania, not necessarily entirely groundless in the case of American communists, um, but exaggerated and, and really essentially fictive uh, on the use of these sort of made-up American spy networks that the Spaniards are seen as participants. As but nonetheless, as you said, they they maintain contact with each other. Uh, they form organizations. So, what is the what? It, how do they make sense of what they went through? Like, what is the memory that they maintain of their participation in the Spanish Civil War? I I think you know a lot of that becomes really clear after Stalin's death and destalinization, where there's really an effort. And I, I think it's it's partly happening before, but even more so once Stalin is kind of revealed as not the great Stalin we thought. There's this effort to kind of isolate the real nobility and selflessness of the Spanish cause from the crimes of Stalinism. That that that's was true communism what we did in Spain, uh, and not tamed uh, by what by what Stalin was doing. Really, of course, at exactly the the same, this effort to kind of cordon it off. And so that even folks who become anti-communists, like some of the volunteers who testify uh, against the Abraham Lincoln Brigade organization, say it's a communist front organization, um, who are themselves veterans of the war, in their testimony, they also make really kind of moving appeals for understanding that what we did in Spain was truly uh, a selfless and important task. So even as they're on the one hand accusing the Abraham Lincoln Brigade organization as being a communist front organization, they're saying, but what we did in Spain was it was really uh, the kind of event of a lifetime and we really did something important there. Even the anti-communists are willing, willing to say that. And finally, you know, a, a vibrant international communist movement is, you know, by all intents and purposes, uh, no more. Um, so what would you say are the legacies and the lessons that we can get from this history of the communist experience in Spain? Yeah, it's a really great question. It's, it's one that the veterans actually asked themselves in the 60s, uh, by which time the old left is more or less out of fashion. And in thinking about sort of how their experience related to the anti-Vietnam uh, anti -Vietnam War protests, they, they really emphasize this idea of Spain shows how individuals and individuals coming together across now can really make a difference. Um, that you can, you know, that they, they really try and make a connection. They're, they're in the 1960s, a lot of them trying to collect you know, memories and reminiscences and information for people who were in Spain. And, and they see part of the importance for people at the time as a, a kind of reminder that international solidarity is a real thing. It doesn't always win, but it's, it's, it's real. And that people can really 
make a difference if, if they come together. So they, they see it as this kind of vindication in a sense of idealism, um, that there really are ways in which we can communicate with the work together across national. Again, it's, it's this kind of romanticized vision of the war, but I think that's, that's the, the piece of it that becomes useful for the left is, is that there really is such a thing as a good fight and that it's worth making. That was Lisa Kirschenbaum, professor of history at Westchester University. Her re- most recent book is International Communism and the Spanish Civil War, Solidarity and Suspicion, published by Cambridge University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! There's a valley in Spain called Harama It's a place that we all know so well It was there that we fought against the fascists We saw a peaceful valley turn to hell From this valley they say we are going but don't hasten to bid us adieu Even though we lost the battle at Harama We'll set this valley free for we're through We were men of the Lincoln Battalion We're proud of the fight that we made We know that you people of the valley will remember our Lincoln Brigade. From this valley they say we are going, but don't hasten to bid us adieu. Even though we lost that battle at Harama, we will set this valley free for we're through. You will never find peace with these fascists You will never find friends such as we So remember that valley of Harama And the people that'll set that valley free From this valley they say that we're going Don't hasten to bid us adieu Even though we lost the battle at Harama, we'll set this valley free for we're through. All this world is like this valley called Harama, so green and so bright and so fair. No fascists can dwell in our valley, nor breathe in our new freedom's air. Valley, they say that we're going. Do not 
not hasten to bid us adieu Even though we lost the battle at Arama We'll set this valley free for we're through